welcome to the National Library of Australia. And um, I'm glad that you're all that you're all in your places now, and you've you've beautifully obeyed, and you've gone into the centre first, and and you haven't left too many empty seats. So thank you for that. Um, so look, welcome to the li uh, to the library tonight. I'm Marie Louise Ayres, and it's my privilege to be the Director General of uh, this, your own National Library. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngambri and Ngunnawal peoples who are the traditional custodians of this land on which many of us live and on which we as the National Library do our work for Australians. I thank their elders, past, present and emerging, for caring for this land we are now so privileged to call our home. I'm also delighted that so many of you have joined us today to hear Marcus Zusak speak about his much-anticipated new novel, Bridge of Clay. Marcus is the author of five books, including the international bestseller, The Book Thief, which spent more than a decade on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into more than 40 languages, establishing Marcus as one of Australia's most successful authors. And I'm sure there will be many people in the audience who, like me, will remember reading those first few pages of The Book Thief and thinking, what, what? What is going on here? And thinking that it was the most inventive way to start a book I've seen for a very long time. So, um, in 2013, The Book Thief was, of course, adapted to film by 20th Century Fox, with a cast headlined by Geoffrey Rush, Emily Watson and Sophie Nellis. Marcus has been awarded numerous honours for his books. Now, these range from literary prizes, and I'm sure all authors love to have these, but also many Reader's Choices Awards, um, so prizes voted on um, by booksellers who know what their readers really like. In 2014, he won the Margaret A. Edwards Award from the American Library Association, which recognises an author and a specific body of his or her work for significant and lasting contribution to young adult literature. Now, joining Marcus this evening is journalist and writer Carolyn Bohm. Carolyn is the author of Only, a singular memoir published last year. She won the Hazel Rowley Fellowship in 2015 and is currently the inaugural reader-in-residence at the State Library of New South Wales. And you might be able to ask her afterwards what that is like. Um, we don't have a reader-in-residence here at the library, but in any given year we actually do have uh, 27 or 28 fellows and scholars coming and using our collection in depth. So I guess they're all readers-in-residence pursuing their own work. So please join me in welcoming Marcus Zusak and Carolyn Bone. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much, Mary Louise. It's lovely to be here. And thank you all for coming out on this wonderful, warm, beautiful evening. But why wouldn't you come here? I mean, this, this is a very special treat to have Marcus here. We have all been waiting for this evening for quite a long time. And, well, I can tell you, if you haven't read the book yet, that it was worth the wait. But imagine the relief for Marcus, who has laboured over this book for 13 years, but been thinking about it for 20, to have it born now and out in the world, especially after a promotional campaign that trumpeted the most anticipated book of the decade. <laughs> No I pressure. didn't write that. No, I know you didn't write that, but I mean, really, you know, talk about no pressure. That is very no pressure. Bridge of Clay is a big ramshackle book bursting with tenderness and violence, loss and love, and laden with symbolism that takes in Homer, Michelangelo, horses, bridges, pianos, you name it. It plays with time, it's full of humour and irony, and it's a rich feast of a book that you simply cannot take in in one read. And for me, that really is the sign of the fact that this book is destined to be a classic. I've been rereading it now for the second time, amazed at the layering of images and symbolism and themes, and I know I'm not getting it all on the second read, and I know I'm going to have to go back and read it yet again to excavate the sort of full richness of it. And, you know, most contemporary fiction that you read these days, you read it once and then you pass it on. That is absolutely not the case with this book. So you, you are in for a real 
treat. Um, I Sounds like hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I thought what we would do just so that we can sort of set the tone and give you a taste and a flavour of this wonderful book, um, if maybe, Marcus, you would like to start with a reading and perhaps introduce what you're going to read to us. Sure. Uh, the first thing I'll do, though, is I just want to say thanks for coming tonight. You could be at home watching telly. Uh, and, I, you know, these, these nights are so great, and thanks, Caroline, for doing this as well. But you start these things off, and you, you remember, like, I remember when I was 24, 23, and my first book came out, and I got sent over to Western Australia to do my first ever reading at a library. It was Margaret River Library, and I've got nothing against Margaret River, uh, even after this story, but I went there <laughs> to do the reading at the library, and everyone said, oh, this is going to be great. It's a great town. It's, uh, you know, they love the arts here. They love books. And of course, I went to the library to do the reading and no one turned up. And, uh, and it's not even the best part. The, <laughs> the best part is that the librarian still made me read from my book. <laughs> I, just to her. And uh, actually, I'm lying. There was a guy, there was a guy there. He just wasn't there for me. He was, <laughs> he was, he was reading a fantasy novel on the couch at the back. And, uh, and every now and again, he'd look up and he'd interject something and then he'd go back to his book. So, uh, <laughs> so for me, I never take anything for granted. And, uh, and so it's great to be here in Canberra and that you've all come. So, mm. so thank you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hugely grateful, and, and it does show as well. It's a testament not only to an event like this and a library like this, but that we still love stories mm. and books, and uh, so it's a real privilege, so thank you. Um, you can see I'm just trying to put off reading from the book, <laughs> uh, which brings me to, you know, I, I just think, you know, growing up, and, I, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do tonight and if I was going to see now I'm putting it off even more, but... Um, but um, you know, there are just stories that you get from being in a, in a family and, uh, and growing up a certain way. And I grew up, uh, you know, with, you know, with a, a brother and two older sisters. And, uh, and one of my favourite memories from that childhood was the very first time at Cronulla Beach when I, I saw... I'd never surfed a wave properly before. And uh, this is a bit like the book. Like, this is going somewhere. You just have to trust me, all right? Uh, and this, just this perfect lump of water came towards me. And I remember it was after school. Uh, our mum had taken us down there to surf. And, uh, and I went, and this perfect wave came towards me. And it was probably about this big. But in my mind, it was this big. <laughs> and, and, it, and I just, without thinking, turned and paddled for it. And... Uh, and I caught it and I stood up and I just went straight across the wave. I didn't do anything else. I just went straight across the wave. And out of the corner of my eye, on the, standing on the beach, was my brother who had already got out of the water. And so I was 12, he was 14. And out of the corner of my eye, I could just see him standing on the beach. And he had the t his towel around him. And I could actually see out of the corner of my eye, his, his arms in the air cheering. Aww. And... Uh, and it's one of my favourite memories from my childhood. And he's here tonight. And he is, and my brother <laughs> is here tonight. And, uh, and one of the best things about that story is, like, I hated my brother, you know? <laughs> and, and he hated me. And, uh, you know, and I mean, that's the joke you have to tell at the end of all of that. But it's not that. It's, it's, uh, it's those moments when you grow up fighting and measuring each other, like who got the most alphabet soup and who got the most of everything, you know? <laughs> and then it's those moments where you go, oh, he does love me, you know, and I love him. And so um, they're the moments you hold on to and they're the moments that are important to this book. And what I've found is, is that I think I'm sort of not trapped, but in a good way, of remembering stories about growing up, and I think every book is about growing up in a way. You grow up in the writing of a book. And now it's my own kids who mm. give me the stories. And I was down the coast a few, well, four years ago with my family, and for whatever reason, I don't know why, we've got two kids, two cats and two dogs. And in the back of my car, there's just dog hair, sand, lolly wrappers, because my kids are such slobs, they never throw anything out. And uh, I took my T-shirt off, and I was brushing sand out of the back of my car. 
And I don't know, I never take my T-shirt off. You know, I never, you know, just do that. But I did that day and I, now I know why. It was because I was, I was about to be given a gift. All right? And the gift was that my... And it was a gift for this book. And it was because my son came around the corner and he saw me, he's four years old, and there I was without my T-shirt on, brushing sand out of the car, and, and Noah, my son, comes around the corner and he stops and he looks at me. Now, to go into the backstory of something else, to preface <laughs> this story, because there's a story under a story under a story, is my kids don't call me Dad, my kids call me Pop. And the reason they call me Pop is because we unearthed all old books I read when I was a kid that have my brother's name in them. And, uh, and one was the series of the Berenstain Bears. And, uh, and in, that, in those stories, you know how, like, there's the kid and the dad's always trying to teach him stuff, but the dad's a real idiot. <laughs> and they call him Pop. So my kids started calling me Pop, all right? And uh, so my son came around the corner and he saw me and he, he saw me without my T-shirt on. And he's gone, hey, Pop, what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> and uh, and I, I don't know how I reacted, but I stopped and I just went, like, that's genius. Yeah. That's absolute genius. And only a four-year-old can come up with that. And, uh, and, of course, my second thought was, I might be able to use that. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and it's in the book. And it it is, is one of the lines in the book which I thought had such a ring of authenticity about it that I thought you must have heard that from a kid. I didn't necessarily guess that it was your kid, yeah. but I thought maybe it had happened in your family and that you had just retrieved it because that line is just pure gold. Now, you are going to read. I'm going to read. Uh, <laughs> so I'll read a couple of pages and we'll see how we go. It's another thing I remember doing a reading <laughs> in Wodonga. <laughs> I've got no Donga, questions, but a woman, fine. a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I really like your books, but your reading is atrocious. <laughs> and uh, people say the best things to you when you're a writer. Uh, so anyway, this is the Dunbar family. Clay Dunbar is the main character in this book. He's the fourth of five brothers. His parents are Penny and Michael. And then Matthew is the narrator telling the story. And then there's Rory, Henry, Clay and Tommy, and this is what their lives look like. Once in the tide of Dunbar Pass, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us, and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay, anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each our own small part to tell the whole, and our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us. As Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny, they liked to tell us, how when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. <laughs> Henry had ears like paper, Tommy was always sneezing, and, of course, there was Clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman next door. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over, Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate, or to love and make great? Even now, it's hard to decide. It was morning, summer, and humid, and when they made it to the maternity ward, Penny was shouting, still walking, and his head was starting to crown. He was very nearly torn rather than born, as if the air had reefed him out. In the delivery room, there was a lot of blood. It was splayed on the floor like murder. As for the boy, he lay in the muggy atmosphere and was strangely, quietly smiling, his blood-curdled face dead silent. When an unsuspecting nurse came in, she stood open-mouthed and blaspheming. She stopped and said, Jesus Christ. It was our mother, all dizzy, who replied, 
I hope not, she said. <laughs> we know what we did to him. And I'll stop there. <laughs> I could get to the nipples part, but, uh, you know, you'll find that out for yourself, hopefully. But, um, I, I but think what that, that passage does, though, is capture the poetry and the humour and the humanity of, of the book in, in, um, in all its glory. But before we talk about the Dunbar family, who are such a, a fabulous family that in a way remind me a lot of the kind of families that Tim Winton described in, in Cloud Street, um, let's just talk about those 13 years because that's been sort of written about a little bit in a, in a terrific piece in The Good Weekend about how difficult this book was to get born. Um, and I'm just wondering, can you just talk us through some of that business of working on it, abandoning it, dumping huge chunks of it? It's a very, very painful process that has um, led to this wonderful creation. Yeah, but having seen someone give birth twice, it's still a lot easier than that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, lo I love it when a man comes up to me and says, when are you going to give birth to your book? And I say, don't even talk to me like that. Uh, because um, that whole process, it's hard, but it's my life that I've chosen to, to live, you know. And, uh, and I love, one of my favourite uh, interviews is, this shows how old I am. So I'm 43 years old, which doesn't seem that old to a lot of people here, but to younger people it is, because I still watch DVDs, all right? And, uh, <laughs> and when I watch DVDs, I always watch the extras. Uh, and, uh, and I watch the extras of The Club. Uh, by David Williamson, and there's this great bit in the interview afterwards where he says, oh, you see these writers and they say, every word is like a drop of blood on the page, and then he just stops and he looks at the camera and he goes, bullshit, you do it because you love it, mm. you know, and, uh, and of course there were times when I didn't love this book, and uh, you know, in times now I don't, I'm really worried about it and how it's going to go and how it's, people are going to compare it, but the thing is, the reason it took so long, I'm realising now, and I would remind myself this on really bad days, and there were a lot of bad days writing this book, um, I just say it's because you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, mm -hmm. and that hasn't, certainly hasn't been done by you, and I realise now that what I was trying to do the whole time was write better than I actually am. <laughs> and, uh, and to me, hopefully, that's a noble pursuit. I was never just trying, like, and I don't, I, what I, I've realised I don't want to do is write the same book I mm. wrote last time. Mm. I want to get better every time and I don't just want my career to be more of the same, more of the same. And I don't want to be reliable. I don't want to be... Like, the, the people I admire the most, you know, like the Neil Youngs of the world, like, you, c you can get five Neil Young albums in a row and they'll, four of them might be terrible, but he needed to produce those four to make the one genius one. Mm. And so... I want to push myself into areas and I kind of want to push the readers of my books as well to not just expect more of the same. I want people to have to, um, you know, and some people have said, you know, it's, this is a hard book to get to know and I, and I tell them that in the beginning. But what I, you know, what I should say as well is that the real unsung hero of this book is actually my wife and that's because she made me quit in 2016 mm. for four to six weeks and, uh, and that was the best thing that could have happened because I had to live with it. You know, she said, I'm giving you one week. She said, it's been 10 years, I'm giving you one week. <laughs> and it wasn't a week to get happy with the, um, to, to finish the book, it was a week to get happy again writing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a depressing, depressive personality, mm -hmm. so, but I, I get sad, but not to that element, you know, where I feel like a failure there but I'm still okay in with the, rest the kids of your life. And, and in general with a tinge of that sadness, but not doesn't consume everything. And she said, but if you can't get it together in a week, I think you and Clay need a break. And it was kind of nice that she, she talked about him as if he lived in our house with us. And, uh, and that week, and that's a lot better than her saying, I think you and I need a break. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. but that week came and went just like all the rest. And what had to happen was I needed to hit a point where the old cliche was true that you don't know what you've got until you lose it. Mm. And, and in those four to six weeks, and I started, like, she really kicked me when I was down. Like, she made me get a... I, I wouldn't be on social media at all unless it was for her. And she made me write a, like, 
she made me get a blog. And then she said, now you're going to write your blog. And I was like, no, <laughs> like anything but the blog. And, uh, and so I started, I, I started writing a project that was reading all the books, like one book per week that I should have read in the time I was in the bridge of clay, swamp land. And I started doing that and it just felt empty because I thought, I hit that point where I just went, God, when I was writing Bridge of Clay, I was writing for the world championship of myself. Mm. You know, and now I'm writing this, which doesn't mean as much. And, and so after the six weeks came through, I went, right, I think I'm ready. And, uh, and the difference became, instead of working really hard at working really hard, I just went, get your hands dirty and love it again. And it was then that all these great things started coming up. I was worried about readers not loving the book and that, they, that, the, that it was too long. And so my chapters were reading like chapter summaries, <laughs> not actual chapters. And then I would remember things like what Noah said to me when he came around the corner and they found their way into the book and I was starting to be alive again. And I'm at my happiest and my best and I will vacuum the house and do all of those things better when I'm writing well. I don't do those things to procrastinate. It's like life gets easier when I'm writing well. But so much of what you've said, I mean, that's a very dense kind of analysis of what was going on for you. And, and a lot of that really, to me, I'm hearing a lot there about expectations, your expectations of yourself, and also the expectations of your fans and your readers who are waiting patiently and thinking, you know, when is it coming, when is it coming? And that is incredibly anxiety-inducing. But what I think is really interesting is that in 2014, you, you went out in public and you, you talked about your relationship with failure and your interest in failure. And I always think that failure is a fascinating subject because it is the laboratory for success. If you don't have the failure, you don't know how to make anything better. And you talked um, in the TED Talk that you did about failure as your friend and failure as motivation. Um, and I'm just wondering, what from 2014 onwards, how you kind of harnessed that interest in failure and turned things around? Not not just you know not diminishing your wife's contribution, mm. but you know your mindset changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, she didn't write anything. No. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, but it's uh, it nothing. The, the the other thing too is that I have to really stress is that. Even then, even when I was at that point and I wasn't working on it, I'm still an eternal optimist. Mm -hmm. And I still actually, deep, far down somewhere, I know I can do it. And I know <laughs> I'm going to do it. And, and I know that something is going to happen and it's going to turn it around and I'll be able to do it. And, uh, and, and that's why I tell people, like when people say, do you have any writing advice, I say, Take it easy on yourself a bit too. Like, don't feel like you always have to feel like writing. So on one hand, just, you know, take it, you know, still don't call yourself pathetic because you didn't get any, anything written today, but at the same time, cultivate the iron will you need for the day when you go, right, this is it. And I know that that day is always going to come. There will always come the day where I say, come on, you pathetic loser. <laughs> Now you can actually do it. And, uh, and then, you know, because I, I have these routines where sometimes I do go away to write just for three or four mm. days. Mm. Any more than that and you start to waste time. And I want to start work at seven o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and, you know, and the easiest thing to do is it hits, uh, you look at the clock and it's 7.03 and you go, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's that it. day yeah, shot. Gone, gone. <laughs> And then, totally. but the thing is, the wasting of that day, though, <gasps> might not be the waste you think it is because you might watch, you know, you might watch Chariots of Fire, Ghost World and, uh, <laughs> and Dead Poet Society and make notes in your notebook because you've seen them that many times that you're thinking about things and you feel terrible and then the next day you're even more galvanised mm. and then you do the work. And, uh, and Chariots of Fire creeps into this book, so watching mm -hmm. the video or the DVD, in yeah. your case, is justified entirely. I'm just wondering in that process and in, and in the way that we're sort of unpacking your psyche and, and the way you kind of psych yourself <laughs> into the work, 
are you competitive? And the reason I wanted to ask you that question is there's a lot of competition and rivalry in the Dunbar family. There's physical kind of competition and there's all sorts of um, ways in which people are tested and, and there's all sorts of things to be won and lost. Are you competitive with yourself or are you competitive in terms of thinking of a bigger arena and you're trying to beat someone out there? It's a bit of everything. <laughs> I, 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 can't even, I can't even say, no, I'm not competitive because my brother's here and he probably remembers me blowing up when we played Trouble when we were kids. <laughs> and that, that, was, that wasn't very pretty. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, losing against him and getting beaten up by his friends in the backyard when we played one-handed boxing, because we only had one pair of gloves, we just had one glove each, <laughs> Um, actually really steeled me. I, there's something in me that likes losing uh, as well. Like I'm sort of drawn to the, to the sad part because I know, I know that it's fuel. Uh -huh. It's fuel to do better. And but the best piece of advice when it comes to competition did come from my dad with nothing to do with riding. It was when I, I thought I'd won an athletics race and I got put in sixth position. And, uh, and I went whinging to him and he said, right, I, th I thought you won as well, but you made a big mistake. Um, you didn't win by enough. You got to win by so much. You got to win by so much that they can't take it off you. And that now, talking about competitiveness, now it's my mum who says, hey, that's one of my lines. <laughs> you know, he stole it off me. <laughs> and, and so um, now I think, and the way I think about that in writing mm. is I, don't, I can't control numbers, I can't control who buy, you know, who the best, and I've never considered, I mean, how The Book Thief is a bestseller is still a mystery completely to me. It was never supposed to be. Um, and I've never, and I don't like, on, a whole, on the whole, I don't even like the big budget movies, the big blockbuster, mm -hmm. I've still never seen Titanic, you know. I've never been interested in those things. What I'm interested in often are the movies, are, are things, you know, that you go to, you know, more like a palace cinema type experience. An art you know. house film. Yeah, mm. a little bit more, somewhere between the mainstream and that. But um, so, but what I, so what I'm trying to do is I'm never trying to beat anyone. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, but what I'm trying to do is instead of that distance being you to win by so much they can't take it off you, I try to write so much like myself so that no one else could have written that. Mm -hmm. And I know, uh, particularly in the case of The Book Thief and now this book, mm. I know that no one else could have written either of these books mm -hmm. and that's what makes them what they are. And that's my other bit of advice to people when they're writing is try to find what it is that makes it you mm. so that you can say this book is actually me even though it's a work of, you know, fiction. Mm. Gosh, that's that's very profound and very insightful. Of course, well, we should we should talk about the book, and, and you know, we've we've touched a little bit on the Dunbars. You've introduced us to them, and I'm curious about the fact that um, there are five of these boys. That's a lot of characters to juggle. You have one brother who's here. You've got two sisters. Why did you decide that you needed five boys, and why no sister? <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up in closer in age to my brother and my two sisters are older so I feel like we were the real sparring partners of my childhood and uh, in good ways, you know, in all good ways. And, uh, and, and I, I, it had nothing to do with my own life that it was five brothers. Mm -hmm. It was purely because I remembered seeing, I remember when The Book Thief was done, I went, right, I've got a choice here. I can write something small and just go, right, get another book out of the way, or I can bet everything. Uh, I can bet everything. I can, I, like, two brothers, three brothers, no, let's make it five brothers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, uh, in these building a bridge, all right, now it's going to be an arch bridge. Like, now, okay, and there's a girl, his best, he's got a best friend, she's a jockey. Um, I, I need a mule in the book, so they live in a racing quarter. <laughs> and, uh, and it was sort of, like I just wanted it to be everything I've got everything I could put in, like, and it was sort of like, be ambitious, and if you fall, it's going to be a great fall. Mm. Like, as it, I didn't want to, I didn't want to back up the book thief with so I needed to prove something to myself. You know, forget the world, forget readers, mm -hmm. forget everything. It's like, can you do it again? And then for a long time, I couldn't. So this is going back to that quote of Beckett's that you like, fail better. 
isn't yeah. it? You love you love that quote. Um, one of the key figures uh, who recurs throughout the book, who's woven into the book in the most beautiful and complex way, is Michelangelo, um, in in reference to a book called The Quarryman. Um, and, and one of the important sort of ideas that, that we understand about Michelangelo is this idea of the, the, the human form that, that was in the marble. His job was simply to kind of extract mm -hmm. the human forms from the marble, that they're, they're waiting there for him to kind of just chisel them out and bring them to life. Is that how you see the writing process? Is that what you're doing? Do you have an affinity with Michelangelo, or else what's he doing in the book? Why him? <laughs> it was more to do with the idea that what, what I noticed when I went to Florence to... This is where you never complain about your job, where I went to Rome, Florence, and to Avignon in France, where there's the great Roman aqueduct mm. just outside of town, the Pont de Garde, and, uh, which is all these magnificent arches. And uh, I'm the only person who could go to Italy and sort of lose four kilos so, because <laughs> I and almost starved to death because I was so embarrassed about not being able to speak Italian. And, uh, <laughs> but I went to the Academia Gallery where the Statue of David is and, uh, and, what, and I went in January where there aren't many tourists. I'd been there before and you see all the tourists, they go past, they go through to the David who's in this great dome of light and he is, he's like a prince. It's like nothing you've ever seen before, and it's the most magnificent thing. And on the way, though, are these four statues, and plus an extra one, but these four statues called the prisoners, mm. or the slaves, and they're unfinished, and all the scratch marks are there. One of them still has the block on his shoulder that he's trying to kind of get off his head. And I immediately saw what I loved, and that was I actually loved the slaves more than the David. And I knew that Clay was a sort of character who would say, anyone can love the David, but I still feel like them. And that's no different to, you know, the night before you go to bed, you go, right, I'm gonna go for a run in the morning. And then you're, you're optimistic, you should really go for a run then. <laughs> All right, because then your alarm goes off in the dark and you go, oh God, it's a bit dark out there. I'm not gonna go. And, and in a way, that's the comical version of what I'm talking about, is that we all wanna do such great things and mm -hmm. beautiful things, but we've got to scratch our way out of who we are to get there. And, mm. uh, and so there is a moment where Clay talks to his dad and his dad, they're talking about making the bridge perfect, really to atone for their own past. And his dad says, I'd love to make something like the David one day. And Clay actually says, and I ummed and art about a young, a boy sort of, you know, nearing adulthood, having the insight to say, but I thought he'd been through enough to say, but we live the lives of the slaves. Mm. And so it's less to do with any, you know, that idea of, I mean, I do think, the other thing, I feel more in terms of, like Michelangelo was a genius, you know, and, and I'm a tradesman. And, uh, you know, and you're trying to create a sort of art form, but you never forget that you're a tradesman. And, but even you read, when you read books about him, he was nicer than people give him credit for, and God, he worked hard. I don't think he was a tradesman. I think what you mean is he was a craftsman well, as well as a genius. So, uh, you know, I think you're a craftsman rather than a tradesman. I think you're, you're, you're sort of, you're talking yourself down there. <laughs> Just to stay for a moment with, um, one of the big themes of the book, of course, is the relationship between this father, Michael Dunbar, and his son, Clay, in terms of the bridge. And, of course, the bridge is symbolic in so many ways. But we've talked about these five brothers. And while I was reading the book for the second time, I wondered... There's a, there's a lot of romantic writing in the book and a lot of tenderness between men um, that you might not expect and that you might not find in other books. And, you know, Tim Winton has been quoted as saying recently in relation to his book, The Shepherd's Heart, that he thinks that Australian men um, are going through a period of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what your take on masculinity is, what it is about masculinity that you're trying to express in this book, because you're not afraid of sentiment and you're not afraid of tenderness and, and being romantic. Yeah, well, there's a moment in the book. So the first thing I do is sort of go to a moment. And there's this part where they, the youngest brother is Tommy. And when their mum has died and their dad has fled them, 
they end up realizing the best way. They sort of spoil Tommy a little bit and they buy him animals. And uh, the first animal, they, but they hate the animals at the same time, and especially the names he gives them, which are after, um, in honor of their mum, who really is the heart of the book, yes. which is the other interesting thing, that so much is made of the masculinity in the book, but it's actually a woman who's the center of it. Mm. And, uh, but anyway, uh, they're looking for this cat, Hector, and because uh, he's gone missing and they're giving it to Tommy. They're just relentlessly just this bloody cat and come and finally he just stops and he runs at them and he kicks at them and he punches them and, he, and he's, he's spitting at them and everything and, and, uh, and, and then he stops and he just says, I really miss them. And he's talking about mm. their mum and dad. And at that point, they all fall on top of him and they pick him up and they take him home. And, and that leads to the other idea. There's a bit where Henry slaps Clay across the back of the head after a few choice insults. And, uh, and Matthew, the narrator, says, and it's one of the biggest lines in the book, actually. He says, it's a mystery even to me how boys and brothers love. Mm. And, uh, and so I think... You know, I'm not sure I agree that, you know, this, this era of toxic masculinity is true. Mm. I, I think at the end of the day, I'm bringing my, my own, uh, you know, just my own experience of that is that I feel there's a lot that's unsaid, but it's there and it's buried and it comes out when you need it. And I think this book, as well as there's a, and I didn't realise this t until after it, that there's kind of a river that runs under that house and it's actually the love story of these brothers. And when they need it, they just reach down into it and they take what they need and then, and then they go back to being men, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's a part of being men. And, uh, and so I just like the idea that not much needs to be said. A lot of those things, it's like Matthew also says, we don't mind touching mm -hmm. shoulders, knuckles, elbows, arms. And, uh, and so, there, and, and certain things where all of my editors are women and there's a moment where Matthew promises Clay that if he leaves to build the bridge and betray them, that he's gonna cop it when he comes back. And no one could understand what was going on, because I thought, well, why doesn't he just beat him up now? I was like, no, it doesn't work like that. He's got to let him, he respects him by letting him go, but he says, you're going to be, I'll let you back in, but first you've got to pay. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they do, they carry Clay back in. And so I think it's just a, it's, I think there's a series of, of knocking down and lifting up, mm. and, and, it, and that's how they prove that they love each other. And actually, Matthew is writing this book for one reason, and I didn't realise until I got to the end of the book why he was the right narrator, and that's because he's writing this story, not even that he has to prove it to himself, but he sees how much he loves his brother, mm. and that's why he's writing the story. Absolutely. It is kind of a love letter to his brother. Time is um, running away with us, and that gives me the perfect opportunity, in fact, as a segue, to ask you about time in the book, because you do this very interesting kind of contrapuntal time, two-step, um, backwards and, and forwards. But I have to say that all the time that I was reading the book, I actually had no idea when it was set, and rereading it in the last few days, I've been waiting until I bumped into some indicator of digital life, mm -hmm. like a mobile phone, and I can't find one. And I'm absolutely puzzled. I don't know when this book takes place. So can you just talk a little bit about time in this book and how you want it to be experienced by the reader? Mm. Yeah, I hate phones. In books, <laughs> uh, you know, and if I if I pick up a book and the first thing's an email, I just don't read it. Uh, <laughs> and it's not because I don't like email and I don't like phones. I just feel like I want books to still be sacred in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are phones in the book. I can I can pretty much find a spot pretty much straight away where there is it. There are a couple of, and you might not have it in that version because ah. I might have uh, put it in later. <laughs> But Hector the cat, so people often say the real love story of this book is Rory, the really tough brother, the human ball and chain, 
and Hector the cat. And uh, because he wakes up hungover and that cat is wrapped around his neck like a wrestler purring. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and then when he first swaps bedrooms, we, he gets out of Henry's bedroom and he, he ends up in Tommy's and the first thing he says is, get the cat, um, get the cat off my bed, shithead. And Hector the cat is sitting on the bed going, your bed. Uh, and so often he wakes up and his phone is actually squashed under him. And, uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a part at the beginning where, um, now I've said that I can find it, I can, trust me I can find it, uh, is uh, where they say if anyone photographed Clay's training or took a video, they'd be taken around the back of the grandstand and, uh, and duly thrashed. And, and that was, I actually didn't have any of those things in there. But the book is actually set, if you really want to get down to it, sort of around, you know, 2000, in the 2005 to 2010. You know, I just didn't want to put a number on it. Right. Uh, and, and they watch old movies. Some people think it's set in the 1980s because they watch movies set in the 90s, that were made in the 1980s. Mm. But that's in homage to their mum who watched those movies to learn English when she moved to Australia. And... Uh, and so she loved the Goonies, uh, and she loved Mad Max, which was technically yes. made in 1979, uh, and there's a whole argument about that as well. So um, it just, I wanted things to be, you never said that it's set in, you're never told that it's set in Sydney, but you know if you know Sydney. Well, you do refer to the bridge, and the bridge is obviously something that, that they can see and visit, so you know, mm. you know that, yeah. but it's not kind of rammed down your throat as a Sydney book. Yeah, I wanted it to be a city that people could recognise. Mm. And so whether they read a book... And I've never... Uh, except The Book Thief, which was so clearly set in Nazi Germany in that time, I never, I've never. i always just had a city or a suburb because I want the reader to bring their own suburb or city into it. And the racing quarter where these boys live, you know, even down to... Uh, and this shows just... You know how I said, I don't listen in on people's conversations, but I know something when I see it. And that was, there used to be a sign in a place where I lived, in Sydney, in the suburbs, where there were two horses on a paddock next to the railway line. And there was a sign on the fence that said, anyone caught feeding these horses will be prosecuted. And anyone was spelt E-N-Y-O-N-E, and prosecuted was spelt right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and then you start writing and then you set a book in a racing quarter. I wanted there to be a mule in the book. The mule <laughs> is called Achilles. And it's why all the, all the other animals are in there for the mule to be there. Yes. And it's why they live in a racing quarter. It's why Clay's best friend is an apprentice jockey. Everyone thinks you've got to have a great imagination to be a writer but you just have to have a lot of problems. And uh, <laughs> the problem in this book was I needed a mule in it because Clay is a really ambitious character, but the idea then is that all ambition is an ass. <laughs> and, uh, and, I and I knew what the ending was gonna be without giving, people, giving it away, but the mule is really important to this book. And, and then, then you start dragging those things in, like the sign, on that field and it made the racing district work mm -hmm. because you could start to believe because you know the small details and uh, you know all those little things add up to making a book itself mm -hmm. you know and uh, you know all these years later to be sitting here is you know a minor miracle. <laughs> um, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, I don't know if we can have a little bit more time because we may have started a little bit late. So if you're getting restless and shifty and you'd like to ask Marcus a question, we have got microphones and we are going to ask you to wait until the microphone comes to you to ask questions. So if at this point you're dying to ask Marcus a question, then perhaps you'd like to raise your hand and we will come to you. Um, we've got a question in the middle, um, the lady with the specs, and then we'll come to you uh, next. Thank you. Thank you, uh, and thanks for your comments so far. Um, I love The Book Thief, but I actually want to ask you about my favourite book, which is The Messenger, and to build a little bit on the comments you made about masculinity and so on, because it seems to me um, that it... it draws a picture of those characters which are the horrifying, badly behaved, beautiful, vulnerable teenage boys. 
um, and haven't read this one yet, but it sounds like the same. But I wondered whether you could comment a bit about drawing that character who's pretty much hated in every society, teenage boys, and really drawing them out so beautifully is really a magnificent thing. Oh, thank you. Um, it was funny hearing people sort of, sort of make that noise of agreement when you mentioned The Messenger. And I've actually found, because I've been, I was in America for three and a half weeks, I was in England for a week before I started this trip. And uh, we had a decision to either do this here at home first or at the end. And we decided to do it in the end and it would, to get people to read, you know, hopefully gave people time to read the book. And, um, and what I found on that trip was how many people mentioned that book, which, it, which I'd always sort of steered away from because I was embarrassed about the ending and I didn't quite get the ending right. And you realise that, you know, now I can look back quite happily on that book and realise that it's actually had an impact on a lot of people. And as a, it's been a real, come as a real surprise because everyone's always going on about the book thief, you know, <laughs> which is... Great. You know, The Book Thief is a gift, but it brought a lot of people back to The Messenger. And I think I was scarred when someone had written on like Amazon or something like that. Uh, they, they, there was a one-star review of I Am The Messenger, as it's called in America, and it said, I cannot believe the genius who wrote The Book Thief wrote this pile of shit. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and you get that, uh, you know, and being a writer, you've got to cop that every now and again. And I th but I think that was just that one little thing that kind of got into my head a little bit about The Messenger as well. And, uh, you know, and just to show how crazy these people are, one of the best, like I got a one-star review for Bridge of Clay for someone, from someone in England who said, this author just put this book out because he knows people will read it because everyone loved The Book Thief. And it's just a quick cash grab. And I'm like... <laughs> So he's just going for a quick buck, and I thought, that is the slowest quick buck <laughs> in the history of writing. And, uh, and so you realise these people are crazy. But so in, <laughs> in talking about, uh, you know, mass, you know that, that idea of young boys, I mean, I was, a, I was a kid, you know, who wanted to be a writer when I was 16 years old. And so I wrote about... I wrote about that, and my first attempt was terrible, eight pages that could be entered into a competition for the worst book ever written. So I was in my early 20s when I wrote... I was 23, nearly 24 when my first book came out, and I was in my writing mind, I was still at that age, and so I understood what it was to feel like a teenage boy, to feel much maligned, to feel like... But not whinging about it either, because I had good people in my life as well who told me I was okay. And, uh, you know, so you feel kind of sick and depraved and dirty and all of that sort of thing. And you love that part as well, but you also know in your heart that you can do good. And, uh, and that's what Cameron and Reuben Wolf were and what Ed Kennedy was as well. He's just an older version. And in that book, I actually really wanted to make something happen. And, uh, and so thanks for mentioning The Messenger and, uh, you know, Every now and again, I think I might write something with those characters again, mm. but nothing stood up in front of me yet, so, but it might. This lady in the blue jacket. I'll try to be more concise. With her hand up. <coughs> sort of almost to the middle. <coughs> the anticipation. Um, hi, thank you so much for coming out. No worries. Um, We've, you kind of touched on the narrative voice of it being Matthew talking about Clay and, you know, how important that perspective is. And I've also, you know, as, you, as mentioned before, having death as a narrator in The Book Thief is obviously packs a punch. So at what point in the process do you choose your narrative voice? Is that something that comes along initially or is it something that you realise you need someone who's outside or unreliable to tell that story? Okay, really great question. And it's different for every single book. I'm the messenger or the... I'm so used to it because I've been away calling it that because they... Anyway, I'm not going to go into why it's called that. Uh, but the messenger, the voice was there straight away. Straight away. That first chapter wrote itself almost. It's the only time that's ever happened to me. Uh, the book thief voice was a bit different took a little while to get, and even I wrote 250 pages with Death as the narrator, and then I swapped to Liesl as the narrator. And it's unthinkable 
to imagine that book without death as the narrator. It's likely I wouldn't even be sitting here and you would all be at home watching telly. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was when I had to fight for more. And it was when I discovered, I thought, oh, if, oh, this is it. I thought of the last line of the book and I went, what if death was afraid of us? Uh, or or, or afraid for us, and uh, and that's when it started to work. With this book, I had there was at one point for the first six years, actually not at one point, for the first <laughs> six years. This is a this is a pretty staggering fact, actually. For the first six years of Bridge of Clay, the narrator was a girl called Maggie, and she was Carrie Novak's sister. Carrie being Clay's best friend and apprentice jockey, and. Uh, and after six years, I went, I actually don't like where this is going. I finally admitted the truth. And, uh, and I went, right, so now what do I do? Clay could never be the narrator because Clay does all of these heroic, uh, you know, he's the Achilles of this book, mm. you know, or the Odysseus. Mm. And uh, I couldn't get him to big note himself about how fast he could run up the stairs or how he was a great 400-metre runner. And he's also, you spent the whole book getting to know Clay. And actually, you don't find out everything there is to know about Clay until the 99th chapter of 100 chapters. <laughs> That's how long it takes to get to know him uh, fully. And, uh, and so Matthew, in the end, was the right choice. I had Henry. I, had even, I even tried Rory. I tried Penny, Beyond the Grave. All right, <laughs> and I went, can't have death as a narrator and now the dead mother being the narrator. <laughs> It's not going to work. Then I tried the dad and he was just too sad and, you know... Did you try the cat? <laughs> I, I drew the line at the animals. <laughs> and, uh, and so then, third, then I even tried that sort of muse-like character, like so at the start of the Iliad and the Odyssey, where it says, tell us, muse. Mm. Uh, he tells the horrible journey that Odysseus had getting home. And so there's a point where you go... I think it's different for every book where you go, oh, this is it. And you know when it was for this book... It was when I rewrote the prologue uh, and I had, instead of Matthew sitting on the roof, I brought him into the kitchen. And now it was just that little thing where I went, now he's inside the house and he's in the most important room in the house where everything in this, so much of this book happens. Their mum tells them they're going to die in the kitchen, that she's going to die in the kitchen. Sorry, not that they're going to die. <laughs> That's death on the first page of the book, Eve. And, uh, you know, and all these big things happen in the kitchen. And, uh, sorry, you're getting a much longer answer than you probably bargained for. And, uh, but it was when he said, I'm writing this on a typewriter. And I had to go and dig the typewriter up from an old backyard in an old backyard of a town. And I went, I'm playing now. I'm in the sandpit. And, uh, and that's when I knew Matthew was going to be the narrator of the book. You're just looking for a little gift. And that's usually how you know, but not always. And it can take 10 years <laughs> or not, 10 minutes. Not to discourage you in any way, but and of course, the typewriter is not the only keyboard in the book, so that the typewriter keyboard is offset by the piano keyboard, and yeah. there's a beautiful symmetry and resonance between those things. That's good. I hadn't actually thought of that. <laughs> but, um, but what I love... I know. Although you are right, because that's how... That's, sorry to undo all your good work. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, is um, Michael Dunbar does actually propose to Penny by writing it out. He says, Penelope, let's shush girl, please marry me across the piano keys. Keep so uh, there is, there definitely is. And, and there's always more at play in a book than the writer thinks. So no more dumb questions or observations Everything from me. else is totally <laughs> on purpose. Do, do we have another question, um, the lady here? And I promise I will be shorter. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like in this book, which meanders all over the place, and that's the great pleasure is, in fact, if you look at the generosity of the answers that Marcus has given us tonight, they are absolutely expressed and reflected in this book, which takes you on so many sort of um, false journeys down all sorts of kind of red herring sort of lanes, but that's part of the joy and the pleasure of this book. Over to you. And I agree with you on that one. <laughs> but everything I'm doing now is what this book does. Because there's a, like I said, there's a story under the story. Mm. And under that story, there's another story. And it's just the idea, sorry, we'll get to your question in a sec. <laughs> it's just the idea that we are all who we are long before we're even born. Mm. And, we're, and those stories are actually all in us. Okay, question. 
Um, the personification of death in this book, I thought, was a lovely link to the book Thief. And I, oh, yeah. I, you know, I took this message from that, that death is always present. Um, did, that, did that just occur organically, that you personified death? You know, he's sitting watching them and waiting. And, or is that something that was a conscious decision? Okay, so there is a... So having gone from using death as a narrator in the book Thief, in Bridge of Clay, death does make a few little appearances in the guise of how we normally see death in something, as in we see death from the outside. And uh, there's a point where he's sitting up on the curtain rod and there's another point where he's hanging from the power lines, looking at the pigeons either side of him. And, uh, and the, the last one, he's got his arm draped around the fridge. And it says, if he was minding the beer, he was doing a bloody good job. Um, which is a reference back, because it's something the book always does as well, is it, it re there's repetition in the same way that there's repetition in the Iliad and mm. the Odyssey. Mm. And, uh, and it's just that oral tradition of telling stories. I did do it for all the book thief readers out there. And I just went, ah, oh, come on, I'll give you something. <laughs> and, uh, and so I put it, but I did it as a sort of thing of, it was just, I would never be so cocky as to wink at a reader, but I, I did it in a way that I just thought, I, you know, I mean, look at all of you, like I've got, you know, every writer will say I've got the best readers in the world, but I actually do. <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted to just, and it just felt right. It felt right for the book. It felt right for readers of The Book Thief. And so I just thought, let's leave it in. Let's have a bit of fun. And, uh, and I do also think that, and of course, it turns back on itself as well later on when Matthew says, we're always trying to shut the door on death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so, you know, just when we got rid of it, but he was always on his way back to us, either on the footpath or on the bus. And then later on, he says, you know, by the end of their mum dying, um, you know, he says, we always tried to shut it out, but now death had so many gifts to mm -hmm. give. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so death in the end always has the last laugh, but it's also our last laugh because death is our ultimate, you know, thing that looms over us that makes everything we do worth it. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, so thanks for noticing and uh, I hope you like that little cameo Your in little, there. That little crumb that he just made <laughs> you. <laughs> um, we're, we're nearly out of time, but um, Lady in Red and if There you are three. I'll try if, to answer yeah, all of them short, and I'll be quick. Short, And then we're going to come to you. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was just wondering which relationship between the Dunbar boys is most like the relationship between you and your brother. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's an interesting one. I would say... Uh, it, that's, a, that's a hard one. I think ultimately it's Matthew and Clay. And, uh, and that's because... You know, I think my brother and I are a lot... We're, we're chalk and cheese, but we're also a lot more like each other. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, my God, I look just like him. And uh, in a good way, you know. And uh, sometimes I say something, I say something and I can actually hear his voice. And, uh, mm. but, and I think it's all of the relationships, to tell you the truth, in one. Because there are, there, I had one brother in my life and there are five brothers in that book and I took everything we had and I just dispersed them into the five brothers. So we've been... Henry and Rory constantly fighting, and that like our, the hair of, is, of them is described as pointing north, south, east, and west. You know, as they come up, and there's Lego and just stuff, and socks everywhere in the, in the bedroom. And uh, you know, and and Tommy, sort of the tenderness of the relationship with Tommy as well. So um, I think it's all the brothers combined, to tell you the truth, is the true answer. That was a short answer. Uh, apparently, uh, we're going to come to you <laughs> apparently. next. <laughs> Hi, I um, wanted to ask, after the success of The Messenger and, of course, The Book Thief, and now this book's received fantastic reviews as well, and the great turnout you've had tonight shows, you know, how well regarded you are, are you starting to trust yourself more and the voice that you have in your books? And basically, I'm asking, will we wait 13 years for your next book? <laughs> or... Uh, <laughs> Do you feel you won't be as hard on yourself having to emulate the success of the book thief for the next one that you can just trust your instincts and, mm. and go with the story that you want to tell? Okay, this is <laughs> thank you for that. And it's I've got a funny feeling I'm gonna write another book pretty quickly. I, I've <laughs> I've um I've fallen I've come out of this whole experience realizing how much I love it 
and how much I need it. And, uh, and actually, it's your failures again that are your friend because actually, you know, and in a lot of ways, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the pressure's off. I'm not on contract. I'm not on anything. I can just do what I want. And uh, Maggie, who was the first narrator of Bridge of Clay, I actually think there's a book for her. Oh. And I think that much as I've always said, The Book Thief will never, ever have a sequel. Uh, I don't think Bridge of Clay will have a sequel, but I think it may have a companion piece because you've got the Iliad and the Odyssey running through mm. this book. And the Iliad is the war and the Odyssey is the journey home mm. of one of the characters. And this book was the war. <laughs> and uh, there might be a book about coming home. So, uh, so we'll see. Not promising anything, uh, but, um, but I think I will write more quickly next time and uh, we'll see. <laughs> that is, I think, a pretty beautiful place to end. Um, thank you so much, Marcus, for your generosity this no, evening. Thanks, You've been so kind of abundantly kind of giving in, in your answers and in your insights. Will you please join me in thanking Marcus? And Suzanne. Caroline as well. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Got to give you a hug for that. Thank you. <laughs> and um, perhaps just uh, I've just been reflecting on um, the the love of reading that we have in the audience here, and about the eternal optimism of librarians that the book will endure and continue. Um, and I'm not sure whether to say this, Marcus, as it maybe is a, a prompt to getting the next book out a bit more quickly. I've just calculated in my mind, in, in that 13 years, we'd have collected about a quarter of a million Australian publications in that time. So, <laughs> however, most people, we don't fill the theatre for most of those quarter of a million publications. So, um, uh, so anyway, that's just something to keep in mind. <laughs> Uh, look, that does bring our evening to a close and uh, I hope you can all join us, of course, for refreshments um, upstairs in the foyer. Um, copies of Bridge of Clay are, of course, for sale in the bookshop tonight and um, you'll receive a 10% discount if you, uh, if you do decide you have to take a copy home. And uh, Marcus has really kindly agreed to sign copies of his books, which I know some of you will really appreciate. So thank you for coming this evening. Thank you for loving reading books. And thank you for loving writing books and talking about them. Thanks very much. Thank